Support comes from AstraZeneca, committed to pioneering the next generation of innovative lung cancer treatments. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about genetic sequencing of tumors for personalized medicine with Dr. Janina Longtine. Dr. Longtine is a professor of pathology and of laboratory medicine at Yale School of Medicine and director of the Tumor Profiling Laboratory at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology at Yale and the clinical program leader of the gastrointestinal cancers program at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So uh, we talk a little bit of, to start out with, like, what is a gene and why are we interested in them? Um, absolutely. Genes are wonderful. The genes, we have over 20,000 genes in our bodies, and they are responsible for all of the diversity between people and also the changes between normal tissues and cancer. And we have to try to understand them, and although we don't completely understand them now, we're learning more and more about how if we can sequence these genes, that is to read them, we can better understand the diversity between people what causes diseases, and what causes cancer. I see. And we're using that um, approach now as part of what we call personalized or precision medicine. So what does that mean exactly? Um, s shall we talk about cancer specifically? Sure. Okay. So uh, traditionally, I'm a pathologist. Traditionally, cancers have always been uh, classified by uh, the organs that they start in, a lung cancer or a breast cancer, and the way they look under the microscope, and often maybe the proteins that they express. And we all have tools and pathology departments to do that. But with the um, advent of our understanding of genes, we now have another layer of ways to examine cancers to be able to subclassify them into distinct groups. And by doing that, we may be able to find, and often have now found, therapies that are specific to different changes within the genes of the cancer. So it's important for us now to add this special tool to sequence genes of cancers and help patients um, with their diseases. So if somebody has cancer today, we can take the tumor biopsy tissue, mm -hmm. uh, pull out the DNA, pieces of DNA, and then run it through this sequencing process to tell us what's abnormal in the tumor. That's exactly right. And sometimes that helps us make treatment decisions. Absolutely, or maybe prognostic decisions about which cancers will be more aggressive and may need some more aggressive therapy, even if it's not precision, quote unquote, therapy. But so all that can help the oncologist direct therapy for the specific patient instead of treating all lung cancers as the if same they were way. alike. Right. I think it's that subclassification of diseases. There is no one lung cancer anymore. There's many types of lung cancer, and we can discern that at the genetic level. I see. So you, you start by saying there are 20,000 genes in the body. These are little pieces of DNA that can tell us to make certain proteins and things. 
But we don't look at 20,000 genes when we look at the tumors, right? No, we tend to focus on uh, the genes that we know that are most important in cancer. There are many genes we don't really understand their role, and so it would be wasteful to um, examine them at the genetic level. So there's a an algorithm that we often use for cancers, and often maybe specific types of cancers. We only look at subsets of genes. We might look at a different type of group of genes for uh, leukemia that's a blood disease versus a lung cancer that's a tumor of the lung. And so um, uh, w what does it exactly mean to sequence a gene and, and how do you do it? Um, so sequencing a gene is actually reading the DNA within the gene. And I'm going to desert just a little bit. I think I have to talk a little bit about the underlying biology so there's clarity to it. Um, a basic structural unit of a DNA is called a nucleotide. And this still staggers me. Our DNA only has four different nucleotides. And we refer to them by their first letter, C, G, A, and T. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. And those um, four nucleotides are clustered into groups of three. And that group of three determines which components of a protein are going to be made. For example, um, if you have TAC as a code, then the amino acid, that, which is a building block of the protein, will be tyrosine. But if instead of TAC, you have TCC, instead of a tyrosine, you have a serine. And, and those little building blocks changes by these very subtle changes in the DNA code. Um, and as a result, uh, cancer can change just one nucleotide. Instead of a C, if you have an A, you'll get a completely different amino acid, completely different function of the protein, and it can really be the driver um, that, that makes the cancer cells multiply and be aggressive within the body versus the normal cells. And that's what we're looking for when we're sequencing DNA in the clinical laboratory. So, so the DNA is like having a whole encyclopedia with four letters. Correct. And what you're saying is that if there's a misspelling of one point of this long sequence of four letters, uh, if one of the letters is substituted, you might land up with a bad protein right. or a protein that causes cancer. Yes, or a protein that doesn't function. And if it's one of the important uh, tools within the, and then that normal metabolism, then yes. So it's, it's like looking for needles in the haystack, but once we understand the cancer genes better, we actually knew which areas to look at, and because they often are commonly acquired in, in similar cancer types, and so we can focus on those, and that's what makes it a little bit more efficient in the laboratory than looking at every gene poss that's possibly sequenced. Before we go a little further with the um, tumor uh, DNA sequencing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted you to um, just make the point or discuss, like, the difference between looking at the tumor DNA mm -hmm. and the person's normal DNA? Mm -hmm. um, it's often important for us in the laboratory to look at both of them because, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion, there's a lot of diversity between individuals, and some of that is just normal diversity. And when we're trying to sequence the cancer, we want to not, uh, we only want to focus on the mutations that are specific to the tumor. So we often will sequence the patient's normal tissue and the cancer and then compare them and pull out all of the variants that seem to be just specific to that person versus another person and only focus on the changes that are specific to the cancer type. Was that clear? Yes. Um, uh, I was, um, so uh, 
you know, everybody's got a little variation in their right, DNA sure. from another person, me and you, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the the tumor DNA is not inherited. Like, if they find a mutation in the tumor DNA, it's not like that's it's, something yeah. that your family can have. That's right. So that's, yes, that's called somatic. So it's only present in the tissue that you're examining. It's not present in every cell of your body, like the ones that you inherit from your parents. And so these aren't the kind of things that are protected by the privacy. And what that goes back to your actual, what we call germline DNA, mm-hmm. the DNA that's in your normal cells. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are two kind of, you look at both when you do the tumor profiling, mm-hmm. you're saying. Yes. We do when we look at lots of genes. If we're just looking at a few uh, targeted panels, we don't really need the germline because there, we're looking on very specific regions and um, that's unnecessary. The reason to look at the germline is because of the complexity of actually reading the DNA. It's just simpler if you are reading many genes to have the patient's normal so that you can pull out and not bother with those and just look at the ones that are specific to the cancer. Okay. But you can do, many places do just the tumor Only, and yes. look mm-hmm. for known. Known. There are databases, there are catalogs, right. there are thousands and thousands of known mutations. Um, so people rely on those to a certain extent. Right. And there's a number of databases that we all rely on to help with that decision tree. Okay. So, um, all right. So, uh, you know, I, I treat people with GI cancers. Mm-hmm. If I order a DNA tumor profiling test on a patient, uh, what is it that you're going to do with my request and what information can you give me back? Um, so, Usually, you've you've already had your diagnosis because the tumor has been sampled in the patient, um, either by surgery or by a biopsy, and so we work in concert with um, the surgical pathology department at Yale, who has the patient's tissue in their archives. Usually, um, it's been embedded in paraffin tissue, and so there's a sample that we can receive, and then we can isolate the DNA from that specific tumor that you requested us to study. So it doesn't require new biopsy? Generally not, no. Okay. And there are several levels of testing you were kind of alluding to? Yeah. So there's um, different approaches that laboratories have. For example, in colon cancer, colon cancer is one of the tumors where we know very specific mutations that can really influence your choice of therapies. And so for often for the first pass, we'll use one of our smaller panels, which is a 50-gene panel, that can highlight some of the mutations that you we know that you're interested for your particular patient to determine whether they're candidates for one therapy or another. And the advantage of using a small panel is the turnaround time is relatively quick and is less expensive for us to perform. And so we have specific panels for colon cancer and, for example, lung cancer. There are a number of different of these smaller panels. Yeah. Well, one of the advantages of some of these smaller panels is that um, with our 50-gene panel, we can cover um, the national guideline suggestions for mutations for lung cancer and melanoma cancer and uh, colon cancer. And so that allows us to bundle specimens together and do them in an efficient manner. When we go to more complicated disorders, when patients have developed metastatic disease and the tumor has evolved, then we might go to a larger panel to find more unusual mutations that are still known in cancer that um, would be helpful to your care. 
I see. And and um, those are um, those more. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? more advanced panels? Yeah, sure. So in uh, the tumor profiling lab at Yale, our more advanced um, panel is called the Oncomine panel. Um, it has 100 and the current version has 148 genes. So we look for changes in the nucleotides in the cancer. But now instead of 50 genes, we're looking at 144 or so of those. In addition, we can look for changes in the level of the gene. Some cancers are driven because the gene amplifies, and so it makes lots and lots of the protein that drives the tumor cells. And so we're able to look at copy number variation in this particular panel. And we can also look at changes in structural. Sometimes cancers are driven because a chromosome, two different chromosomes join up abnormally and create a novel uh, protein. And so we can also look for those in this uh, broader Oncomine panel. So uh, the copy number variants, as mm -hmm. you were saying, will tell us if a gene's overexpressed, mm -hmm. and that can be important, for example, for breast cancer right. or with certain mm -hmm. proteins like HER2. HER2, exactly. And or what we call translocations, mm -hmm. where there are, the chromosomes have rearranged themselves in a pathologic way. Correct. And um, so uh, you, your laboratory uh, does these tests routinely, and how, how long does it usually take to process that? So um, our turnaround time for the 50-gene panel now is nine days from when we receive the tissue in the laboratory, and the more complicated Oncomine takes us 18 days from when we receive the tissue. Um, and uh, and so then you're, you get the results, you give them back to the physician to help mm -hmm. with the treatment decisions. And that would be, for, uh, how is that helpful to the patients then? So we, what we do in the laboratory is um, we analyze the DNA, we read the DNA, and we also um, look at the literature to help write uh, an an annotation or an interpretation to guide the physician, because not all uh, physicians are as sophisticated, and so we provide some information. And then the, um, the oncologist then can use this information to either decide to use standard chemotherapy because there's not an actionable mutation, or perhaps change therapy to some of our personalized medicine drugs that will um, allow the patient some better opportunities. Well, thank you very much. We're going to take a short break now for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about tumor profiling and genetic sequencing with Dr. Janina Longtime. We'll, we'll talk more about uh, how the doctors are using this information for personalized medicine when we come back. Support comes from AstraZeneca, committed to pioneering the next generation of innovative lung cancer treatments. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about lung cancer. More than 85% of lung cancer diagnoses are related to smoking and quitting even after decades of use can significantly reduce your risk of developing lung cancer. For lung cancer patients, clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments. Advances are being made by utilizing targeted therapies and immunotherapies. The BATTLE-2 trial at Yale aims to learn if a drug or combination of drugs based on personal biomarkers can help to control non-small cell lung cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. 
Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Janina Longtine, Director of the Tumor Profiling Laboratory at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So, Nina, we've been talking about when somebody has cancer today, there's additional information available beyond this old pathology kind of uh, diagnostics by looking at the DNA in the tumor. And that's what you do in the tumor profiling lab. And you were just saying that when you do the larger tests, uh, you, you give information back to the physician about specific treatments and so forth. So how, how does that work and why is this helpful to patients? Um, so let me give you a specific example. Uh, for lung cancer, there, the microscopic description is um, sub subsets them into the way they look under the microscope, which I'm sorry is redundant. And there's a group of tumors called adenocarcinoma, and they all look alike under the microscope. But in the past 10 years of my life, I've learned that instead of one type of lung adenocarcinoma, there's four or five different types. And it's really based on sequencing the DNA and identifying the mutations. For example, a common um, mutation in lung cancer is mutations in the EGFR gene, epidermal growth factor receptor. And mutations in this gene will allow the tumor cells to grow much more rapidly than normal cells. And we can sequence them and identify a very, just one amino, one change in one amino acid can actually drive the tumor cells. And there's a drug that is available. They're called tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We'll put the brakes on that protein and actually have the tumor regress just with this one drug. And it's that that's really the thrilling part of what we can do because this paradigm has been repeated over and over again as the drug industry has been able to identify more drugs that are used for targetable therapy. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting story. It's only about 10 or 12 years since people discovered that these mutations could give people lung cancer, and it was very... Um, it kind of came up because they were looking at lung cancer, particularly in young women who weren't smokers, and it turned out that they tended to have these mutations. So then when we had the tools to look at the DNA more, they could see that this particular protein had was stuck in the on position, and that was which was causing the cancer. So fortunately, there were some drugs around that could turn it off. Right, and, and then the corollary is also, as you know, in your field, so the same EGFR pathway um, can be shut down um, in, col in metastatic colon cancer by using a, a drugs that are um, anti-EGFR antibodies. But we've discovered that if you have mutations in the RAS genes in colon cancer, that they don't respond to this treatment, and the treatment is very expensive, and so it's much better for you to understand that your patients would not be candidates for those. And the more we've studied them, we've more we just found more RAS genes. So now, and originally we only looked for two different mutations, and now we look for five or six or seven to help you in that therapeutic planning. Right, so that's another great example. In that case, instead of finding the driver protein that you could have a specific treatment for, we found out um, that there were these mutations that made a drug ineffective. So we're able to personalize the treatment by not giving people ineffective and toxic treatments uh, based on their DNA profile. So that's that's been very useful, and we kind of, today in treating colon cancer, kind of break up colon cancer into those two groups, the ones that have it, the mutations, the ones that don't. 
So um, those are two really good examples of, of how um, DNA sequencing can be helpful. There, there are a lot more things that are happening in, in this area, though, right? For example? Well, I mean, <laughs> today, for, I mean, the thing that I'm excited about is that um, we had a drug that was approved uh, for a couple drugs that were approved for treatment today in, in, in immunotherapy that aren't mm. based at all on a diagnosis. They're only based on the molecular characteristics and biology of the tumor. We're, I'm talking about people who have something called microsatellite instability or you know, kind of um, problem with DNA repair so that they have a lot of DNA breakages. Those, anybody who has that kind of DNA biology, whether it be in colon cancer um, or a brain tumor, they can get these uh, drugs now due to FDA approval that wasn't based on a specific kind of cancer. Yes, I agree. This is an exciting era when we're having, where we don't have to basket tumors based on what organ they came in, but we can understand there's some common underlying abnormalities, which, which you just mentioned is increased mutation burden within the tumor broadly that will make the tumor makes proteins that are unusual, and the immune system recognizes that and starts to attack it, and we can help enhance that attacking so that the immune system can help control the cancer. Um, at the, the, me the methodology that you just mentioned is often an immunohistochemistry test where we look for abnormalities in these mismatch repair. But also, now people are starting to look at broad mutation burden across um, DNA. So if you have tumors like from smoking or other environmental um, drivers, you can see that there's many, many, many more mutations in melanoma or smoking lung cancers than there are in some other types of tumor, and you can use immunotherapy in those cases. So I think just to kind yeah. of restate what you said, yeah, is you. that there, there are some ways that we can look uh, more simply by staining proteins on slides of your tumor, but there are a lot more sophisticated ways at once we extract the DNA to look at how many uh, mutations there are in a big piece of DNA, and that may be reflective of the susceptibility to immunotherapy. Exactly. That's in its infancy yet, so we don't really have the criteria to make sure we're for everyone, but I think it's a new uh, emerging field that will addly, add immunotherapy more broadly to all of our patients. So, I mean, things are changing pretty quickly in this area. I mean, what kind of things in the last few years have have changed in the area of, of DNA tumor profiling? I think it's just the breadth of our understanding and that it's um, across many, many different tumor types and there are many different types of genes. And how I, from a professional, it's hard to know exactly how fast to bring things on to bring us to clinical testing because the field moves so quickly. And there are many laboratories now that are moving towards whole exome sequencing. So they're looking at all of those 20,000 genes and just think of how difficult it will be to be able to manage that both intellectually and in a cost-effective manner. Right. So um, you were talking about the 150-ish gene panel today, mm -hmm. which is kind of a broadly accepted one. It was helped we helped develop it here at Yale along with the National Cancer Institute for some of our clinical trials. But that, that does include most of the mutations that exist in cancer today, right? Yes, I think most of the ones that are um, involved in clear clinical indications for therapy. So when we 
do broader sequencing, like looking at the whole DNA, you know, this whole exome sequencing, we're actually kind of going on a fishing expedition that's a big, pretty big expedition. Um, yes, but I think that in uh, university settings, um, often this is incorporated into sort of translational research where you're looking more broadly and then you'll be able to have uh, clinical information about these patients and retrospectively perhaps understand more about the biology of cancer so that we can then incorporate other genes into our routine clinical armamentarium. Yeah, and I think that's that's very important that we're always trying to learn more uh, even if today there's 150 genes on our panel, you know, it could be 200 by next year. If we don't look for the other ones that we don't know about yet, we're not going to be able to really continue to deliver the best information and best treatments. Right, and there, I've just returned from my professional meeting, the Association for Molecular Pathology, and so there's parallel um, opportunities going on across the country, and we're all building uh, practice guidelines just as you have in your field to make sure that everyone's trying to look for the proper genes and the right number of genes uh, in clinical care. And so uh, that's a kind of a subset of all the pathologists are these molecular pathologists. Yeah, that's so how, do, how does the group define itself, or how do you as a molecular pathologist, um, I how think, do you guys define yourselves? I, I think in the original days um, it was by just self-proclamation because of those of us that were interested in understanding the molecular biology of disease and in particularly cancer, but it's also relevant to germline disease and infectious disease. Um, but now... With the practice of medicine, there is an urge to have people come together with consensus, and, and the Association for Molecular Pathology works on practice guidelines and also works on us better understanding all the new instruments that are available and how we could incorporate those into our laboratory. I see. Well, that's pretty interesting. Um, and what do you think, what do you kind of anticipate in the next couple of years, what changes are coming along in your field? Um, well, actually, there's two sort of, there's, there's all this excitement about how we're learning more about cancer and how to bring it into the field, but the corollary of that is um, these tests are not well reimbursed by insurances, and they're quite costly to do. And so from a director of a laboratory, it's always trying to balance the wishes and the realities to make sure that we provide what we need for our patients in a cost-effective manner. And... Uh, well, that's a really important point, and everybody's focused on um, cost-effectiveness today. But some of these things are amazingly cost-effective if we find the right treatment for the right patient at the right time. Right. Globally, we are, but from... Uh from the laboratory's perspective, it, we have sometimes we're working with our payers very closely to make sure they understand the value of the test so that they can be reimbursed. And um, finally, could you, could you say a couple words about something that's called a liquid biopsy? Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, it's just drawing blood, but you know, it's being <laughs> called this liquid biopsy yeah. thing because I guess that's how the billing works. Yeah, well, actually what it is is that um, the molecular field is always fast-growing. So no matter once you feel like you've conquered like 150 genes, there's something new coming down the pike. And so what everyone's interested now is is actually rather than going to just depending on getting a biopsy of tissue that you can actually look at cell-free DNA, uh, which I'll explain for a moment. When tumor cells are growing in your body, they grow very rapidly, and they often release their DNA into the bloodstream. So you can take a sample of blood and actually biopsy, only take the blood sample and get DNA that's relevant to the tumor. And so you can sequence that in your laboratory and get a hint of whether the patient 
has an actionable mutation, or what hap- as you and I know, is after you give patients a drug, sometimes they develop resistant to that drug, and there may be a hallmark in their blood of developing resistance. And so this is all in the experimental phase right now, but it may be a, a way to help um, analyze patients after they started their therapy to find more effective therapies. Yeah, I think there's a lot of potential at looking at this circulating tumor DNA. I mean, the challenge for years is everybody knew there was DNA out there, but how to get it and measure it because it's in such small quantities and amplify it. So, But we're getting to the point, like I was on a call yesterday with the National Cancer Institute where we're trying to start a... Um, uh, an effort to look at people who've had their colon cancers taken out and to see if they have any DNA circulating in their blood still, those are people who might need more aggressive treatment. So there are areas like that, and besides what you said is on treatment, you could get mutations that you can detect that will help us decide on the next therapy. So this is really exciting for many of us in the therapeutic area, and I think it's kind of going to help us um, give a lot more personalized or precision mm-hmm. treatments to these patients um, uh, across the whole spectrum of therapy. We're coming pretty close to the end. Anything else that you'd like to add? Any last thoughts? I think it's an exciting field and something that's really going to, is impacting clinical care and it's been a real pleasure for me in my you know 25 years of practice to see the evolution of this field and the promise that it hopes for bringing personalized care to our cancer patients. Dr. Janina Longtine is a professor of pathology and of laboratory medicine at Yale School of Medicine and director of the Tumor Profiling Laboratory at Smilo Cancer Hospital. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.